0: Welcome aboard. We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime. Ready when you are, CB. Action. Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 77. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Very excited to be back again this week, as we are every week. But this week in particular, because we've got an awful lot going on this week. We've got some great interviews lined up for you guys. We have a contest, uh, some great prizes that we're going to be giving away. More about that towards the end of the episode. But I think more exciting than anything else is the fact that we are going to get to delve into the 1995 documentary Frank and Ollie. Uh, it is about two of Walt Disney's original nine old men, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston. And this is one of these things that we love so much about Disney+. Plus. We had been wanting to see this film for quite some time, but it was not the easiest film to obtain. Very similar, actually to Waking Sleeping Beauty, which we reviewed back on episode number 13.
1: Right. When we had initially heard of Waking Sleeping Beauty, it was screening at the Tribeca Film Festival, and we really wanted to go, and we weren't able to get tickets. So we had hunted it down for years, and ironically, the place where we found it was on a Norwegian cruise. It was one of three movies that was in rotation while we were on this cruise. And luckily, we got our fix. We got to see it a whole bunch of times um and similarly with frank and ollie we had heard about it but we just didn't know where to find it and this was even less accessible like waking sleeping beauty we actually got our hands on the dvd so we do have a copy ourselves before it got to disney plus but we had no idea where to find frank and ollie and lucky for us it was a release day title on disney plus
0: Yeah, and this was one of the first things that we watched when we did get home from our Disney trip because similar to the cruise story, a lot of you have heard us say that we were at the Magic Kingdom on November 12th when Disney Plus launched. So it wasn't until we got home a few days later that we were able to really start delving into the content on Disney Plus. And, you know, I love the fact that this is here. I love the fact that... Disney is now starting to not only release films like Frank and Ollie and Waking Sleeping Beauty on the streaming service, but now they're also starting to produce their own content for the streaming service because, you know, listen, we're not going to water down what Walt Disney accomplished in his life, not by any stretch of the imagination. But I feel like so many people know his story, and it is a great story that, when you really do love Disney the way that we do and the way that so many others do, it's the unsung heroes whose stories you want to hear more about, especially Frank and Ollie, because I think that a majority of Disney fans know the names Frank and Ollie, and I think they know that they were some of the original nine old men, but it's their story in particular, their relationship to each other, that really makes their story amazing. And I can actually see this being developed into a biopic at some point in time and piggybacking off of the success of this documentary.
1: I agree. Their, their story is that fascinating where it really would work as a feature film. Yeah. Um, you know, and to piggyback on what you said, of course... Everybody knows Walt's story and it's easy to recognize what he's given us with the films and the parks but so much of the iconic imagery that we know was all Frank and Ollie.
0: Yeah. And
1: like when you when you watch
0: this film I think I said it when we when we watched it just the other day this if you if you looked up fate in the dictionary <laughs> Frank and Ollie's pictures would be right next to each other. Because this friendship and what it turned into, not only for them on a personal and professional level, but for what it did to affect the world. Because it's really what it is. The the, the impact they had on society as a whole, it's all a matter of right place, right time. It's total fate.
1: Right, because... You know, when you look back at their body of work now, you can talk about all these accomplishments. But when you go back to the beginning of what it actually took to get them there, it's nothing short of a miracle. They met uh, in college at Stanford and they were taking art classes and they were doing a lot of life drawing and things like that. And animation wasn't even really on their radar at that point, they met when they were 19 in college at Stanford and after school, they became roommates. They were living in a boarding house
0: um, right? because they had moved from Stanford to L.A. to continue going to
1: art school. Right. And then in 1934, they were hired at Disney for seventeen dollars a week, which is difficult to even wrap your mind around now thinking about what minimum wage is and inflation.
0: And people are fighting for 17 bucks an hour nowadays.
1: Exactly. It's kind of mind-blowing that they were able to survive on that. Even when you consider, you know, from the 1920s to the 1940s, you're talking about Depression era, that they were, you know, hired to the studio— that Walt was even able to do this with everything that was going on in a poor economy— is amazing.
0: Right, because you had the Depression, you had a world war. That's the, the, the economy was such a roller coaster.
1: Exactly, and the fact that these two were able to go to college, that they were able to afford school and continue to pursue their art during this time is pretty amazing, compounded with the fact that they met each other, which was fate in and of itself, and really pushed each other's career forward. And then, of course, we're going to talk more about how they influenced each other, their style and their storytelling. And like I said, it's easy to look back on their career now at all of their accomplishments, but they really didn't have it easy getting started. And what's more is that they weren't even considering animation.
0: Right, because animation was very primitive at the time. It was something that I mean, yeah, you had cartoonists in the newspaper, but in terms of live animation on film, a lot of it was sort of cheaply made. They were little vignettes you'd see at the movie house. You know, like Ollie Johnston in this film talks about how he always liked cartoons but never really saw one that made him laugh that hard until he saw what he said was a film about a dog getting stuck on flypaper, and it was Pluto. And what stood out to him specifically, was how they were able to get Pluto to emote. And they had never really seen that before. So you could see where animation was trending, specifically films that were coming out of the uh, out of the Disney studio.
1: Right. And with Frank, it was the flying mouse that caught his attention when he saw the way that the animation was married to the music. Right. And, you know they went they did their uh audition so to speak their tryouts yeah yeah they both got hired based on their talent which i mean obviously like disney had would have had to be crazy to to let them fall through the cracks but from there they got hired into the studio system that was about to make the first animated feature and was known around town as Disney's folly because they right. all thought he was crazy. And yet Frank and Ollie still wanted to go with him on this journey. And again, it's it's a miracle that they did.
0: Yeah. And they talked about how Walt was a great teacher and he sort of made the studio go. And they tell this story about, um, they were in an animation meeting or a story meeting and one of the animators was pitching this uh, scene where Pluto wakes up in the morning and Walt Disney they said he started making faces with his mouth and they thought that the guy had figured I'm working as they said for a spastic but they they said what he was doing was he was acting out in real time what he does when he wakes up in the morning and you get that bad taste in your mouth in the morning And those were the faces that he was making because in in his mind, he was acting out what Pluto was about to do. So Walt Disney was a very outside-of-the-box thinker, but it took The Nine Old Men and specifically some of the drawings that Frank and Ollie did, many of the drawings that Frank and Ollie did, to take what he had in his mind and put it on the screen.
1: Right, and if you haven't seen Frank and Ollie the documentary yet, it is worth it just for this scene to see them imitating Walt and playing off each other. Um, it's just so funny. But yeah, I mean, that that was how Walt told his stories. He was very hands-on. He would act a lot out. And I think they were kind of on the same wavelength as him when it came to figuring out how to make characters move and emote. They studied a lot of silent film as well. They talk about... Um, watching a Charlie Chaplin film. And, you know, that was something that I found really interesting because it, silent films were, even though they were live action, it, it it directly relates to this because you had to figure out a way to emote and get your point across without any words. Yeah. So it's brilliant.
0: Well, they were... It, their Their strength in what they did in these films was tapping into emotion and tapping into raw, authentic emotion. But they had such a different way of doing it. Like you talked about the silent films. and that was Frank Thomas. you know, they they will tell you how analytical he was. And he really broke things down. and you, you sort of see him do this. In the documentary, even in his day-to-day life, where he's so observant and he he breaks down and analyzes everything that he sees, and that's sort of what motivates him to put his pen to paper and get the most out of these characters. And like he was so even keeled, but somehow he knew how to tap into emotion and it showed through in his artwork.
1: Right. Like you were saying with analyzing things, there's a scene in the documentary. It's so charming and so sweet where he he has a moment with his dog and he's talking about how the dog has almost a smile line and it makes him interesting and it makes him look like he's thinking even more. And just to pick up on a characteristic like that is really amazing. And you can see it, like you said, in the drawings, Um, they show uh. Frank did Captain Hook and they show one of the original sketches and um, Ted Thomas interviewed Glenn Keane as a part of this documentary and what Glenn was saying was that he would draw thousands of lines and it was almost as if he was searching for the perfect one to get the character right and to me I'm looking at this original artwork that must have been such a project for the ink and paint department to clean up.
0: Right, and then on the other side you have Ollie Johnston who they said drew from emotion and his drawings were very, very light. You know, his pencil sketches, they said the pencil almost hardly touched the paper. So you have one guy analyzing everything and just going over it again and again and again and again until he got it right. And then for Ollie... I'm not going to say it didn't come as naturally for Frank, but it seems that Ollie was able to just be like, okay, this is how I feel. This is how I want it to show because he said you, sh- you should draw from emotion. And that's partially where they, they did analyze some of those silent films as well, but that he could just so lightly draw it on the sheet of paper and accomplish his goal without having to go over it line after line after line after line. But with all of that being said that you have two completely different people with two completely different styles, but somehow they accomplish the same exact goal.
1: I think that's also what makes them so different from the rest of the nine old men is not only their friendship, I mean, that's a given, but their friendship, I think, really blossomed because of the way they were able to work together and the way they were able to bounce ideas off of each other. And part of that comes from, you know, an almost everyone interviewed for this documentary mentioned that they would carpool. So they had the leg up on everyone else and that they would have a half hour before work and a half hour after work to talk about what they were doing and how that would relate to each other. Um, But even more so than that, I think that they just had such an understanding of story and, you know, that comes out too when, they're talking about uh, the ice skating scene in Bambi. Yes. And how Walt almost wanted to cut that and Frank fought to get it in because he knew he w- exactly what he was going to do and he knew how he was going to draw it and he knew that it was going to show how Bambi and Thumper relate to each other and that their friendship is really starting to blossom at this point. And he just had such an intuition for this scene. He knew how important it was going to be, and he fought for it and won. And same thing with the, the Lady in the Tramp spaghetti and meatballs. That almost got cut, too. Right. And
0: it's it's amazing to hear them tell these stories. But what I love is how they can recant how each animator was different. I mean, we talked about, you know, them because they are obviously the focal point of this film, but... They're even able to tell you how each animator was different and how each of them had their own strengths and how they all sort of did their job differently. However, collectively, they were able to make these timeless films and this beautiful art. And it's weird because you somehow use the term... The sum, uh, what is it? The sum is greater than the parts. Yes. But it's amazing because you can sort of make that case here, but all of these animators were extraordinarily talented artists, even on their own. So it was sort of the perfect mix of brilliance and talents all put together, same place, same time.
1: You're absolutely right. There's no question that each and every single one of the nine old men were incredibly talented. Um, Some of them had strengths in drawing the princesses. Some of them had strengths in drawing the villains. And, you know, each of them did get to work on all of those things. They all got scenes, not specific characters. But I think the scenes where Frank and Ali really shine are... The ones where it's about friendship, like the Mowgli and Baloo relationship. Yes. Or even something like Hook and Smee playing off of each other. Like, yeah, Hook is a villain, but, like, Smee is his faithful sidekick. And I think you do get to see a little bit of Frank and Ollie shine through in there as well. You absolutely do.
0: And it's amazing in this documentary to see them actually act out some of these scenes. Because what Ted Thomas did when he shot this was there were obviously clips from the Disney films and you had these sit down interviews and a lot of the interviews that he does do with Frank and Ollie. It's shot with the two of them sitting together, which I think is very poetic, but he would shoot against a white backdrop. A psych. Yeah. Where they were acting out the scenes that they would later animate. And you also see old archive footage of, like, Frank Thomas, for example, when he's working on Lady and the Tramp, and there's the scene with, what's a baby? And he's looking at himself in the mirror, saying it over and over again, observing his facial structure so that he knows how to put pen to paper and draw it the way he wants it to look, because they everything they did was made to look realistic and authentic, so to see them actually act this out. All of these years later goes to prove your point where they were playing off of each other because they were really drawing influence from real life.
1: Right, and to circle back to what you were saying, I think that was a really smart choice on Ted Thomas's part to use those little moments of them acting out their characters as transitions as opposed to just relying on clips of them working or the original artwork um, I think that's where it gave it such a personal touch was that he was able to get them to act out characters that were so personal to them
0: right and a lot of where this shines through is being authentic as well is you know they were next door neighbors and what people need to understand this is not a typical Um, documentary or special feature behind-the-scene thing that you are used to on a DVD or a Blu-ray release. This film is very much a slice-of-life piece. So you see them walking back and forth from each other's houses. You see them sitting in their office and just conversing and going through their old artwork. The authenticity and the love and respect that they and their families had for each other is where this brilliant animation shines through, and it's where this brilliant artwork has become timeless. Because I I don't think I can stress enough that I really do believe the recipe to their success specifically, and I think it is the success of a lot of the original animators and The Nine Old Men, is how authentic, for the most part, a lot of these early films felt.
1: What's amazing, too, is... Not only that they weren't getting sick of working with each other all day, their friendship continued into the evening when they had gone home. It continued, I have to imagine, over the weekends that they were spending time together because it seems like the families were very close. Right. But then they also went on to write books together, too. I mean, their, their entire careers are completely intertwined with one another.
0: Right. And Glenn Keane, at one point in this film, says that there were some people that thought that, Frank and Ollie was one person, that it was one name, because you never just said Frank, you never just said Ollie. It's Frank and Ollie.
1: It does sound like a company.
0: Yes, it does. And uh Andy Gaskell in this film was another uh interviewee. You know, he said that he had never had a relationship like this with, you know, a platonic friend. Like this is their their relationship is so unique and so genuine and again i keep going back to the word authentic and where they really did draw influence from real life and where they put so much into these characters because i believe it was frank thomas that said you work on these characters it's pen to paper it's it's your creativity it's your character in your mind and then when you send the film off for release he said it's like sending away your child to school and there's you've done what you can for them and now you release them into the world
1: it's so true i mean i it's like that with any art that it's something that you're working on and you've created and that you're married to and you're spending so much time with it and then you just have to set it into the out into the world and it's not yours anymore it's people are going to interpret it in their own way and people are going to criticize it too. And I have to imagine that that's very hard. Right.
0: And even they, you know, they criticize some of their own work at times. I remember watching this and they talked about, um, and it was actually one of the few criticisms that we had of Bambi was when Bambi is walking around getting introduced to, to all of the other woodland creatures And they said it was dull, 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 because you're just watching him walk around. Good morning, young prince. Good morning, young prince. And it wasn't until they you know, got the voice actor that played Thumper that it really brought that scene up. But similarly, where they rallied for certain scenes to be kept in films, they rallied for that specific voice actor because they were not going to cast him because they couldn't think the kid could
1: act. The nine old men went to bat with the casting department to get the voice of Thumper because that's where they found their inspiration from.
0: Yeah. And talking about inspiration in general, there's a scene that I thought was very telling where Ali Johnston talks about how he does his best thinking when he's walking and he gets the most inspiration when he's walking. And they show his little walking place on his property. And the grass is so dead and so worn down that you can see that he he must have spent hours a day just walking that little loop because his mind was constantly going.
1: It's almost like a little crop circle. You can yes. see it's like very defined. The rest of the grass is beautiful. It's green, but you can see the definition of where he would just... Walk around. I think that was such a smart choice on the part of Ted Thomas as well to highlight them as individuals because, for as much as they work together and bounce ideas off of each other, you know, it's like we were saying a few minutes ago, was that they were just known as Frank and Ollie, and it was, you know, people thought of it as one thing. But part of what they've contributed. To the Disney canon is because of who they were as individuals as well. And, you know, for as well as they worked together, they did have their own creative process and they had different hobbies too. And um Ted highlights that showing how Ollie had trains as a hobby, and he actually yes. brought that to the attention of Walt. And I mean, everybody knows that Walt was obsessed with trains. Yeah. But that really came from Ollie. And then likewise Ted wanted to highlight his father's love of music because he played the piano and um, the nine old men had the band, the firehouse five plus two. Right. Um, So they would play a couple of instruments. And um, I love that we got to see a little peek because it's fun. They were clearly having fun with it, but you know, they were doing it on the clock and it's one of those things where Walt probably really didn't care as long as they were doing something to foster creativity.
0: Right. And they talk about that in the film as well, because uh, they they said that they used to do caricatures of each other just to bust chops and have fun. And Frank says in the film, you know, Walt never cared about the caricatures because he knew that it was strengthening our communication skills and also our creativity and our artistic ability. And what I love about the Firehouse 5 Plus 2 is that similar to where you have that whole patch of dead grass where Ollie Johnston is just walking and walking and walking because his brain is always going. For Frank Thomas, this was another creative outlet for him where they could blow off steam other than just putting pen to paper. But similarly, at the beginning of Waking Sleeping Beauty you see Don Hahn is playing the stand-up bass in a band that was formed on the Disney lot and they were playing Jingle Bells. So what I love about this is the lineage that starting with Frank and Ollie and carrying through even up until that film, which at least at that in that portion is set in the 1980s, you still had people fostering all sorts of creativity to burn off steam but also stay sharp.
1: And likewise with those caricatures is that's what they do for Christmas now at the studios is they all draw caricatures of each other so that's a tradition from the nine old men that has upheld to now, which is amazing.
0: The other thing that's amazing and as odd as it sounds, it took sometimes you need somebody to point something out to you that in theory would be very obvious. One of the interviewees, admittedly, I I can't remember which one, so I apologize, points out that at the time that this documentary was shot, 1995, there were four and a half billion people living on the planet. Yes. And he said, I'd venture a guess that about half of them have seen a film with a scene that Frank and Ali animated. That is... Is absolutely mind-blowing. Like It's so obvious, but it's not until somebody else called it to my attention that I had to sit back in my chair and go, you know, these men have affected the lives of generations, billions of people, and will continue, because these films are timeless.
1: You're absolutely right, and that's like what I was saying earlier, is that we all know what Walt did, and we all appreciate what he's given us, but it is the guys behind the scenes that are the ones that we're really latching onto because they're the ones who created these characters and who told their stories. And I think looking at the greater Disney community, that's what connects us all. Because yes, we all have memories of the parks from when we're children and our our first visit, but the movies are what really grab you. And that's in most cases, I think your first taste of Disney, your first exposure to it is that you have that memorable scene that you saw when you were a child that spoke to you and hooked you in. And that came from Frank and Ollie and the rest of the nine old men. And I think that that's what makes this documentary so enjoyable to watch is because you're seeing more than a story of two incredibly gifted people, but it's one of the most beautiful friendships, and we're so fortunate that Frank and Ollie were able to capture it and convey it through their animation and share it with us.
0: Yeah. You know, when you think about some of the great legendary duos in Hollywood, you think of, you know, Abbott and Costello... You pointed out the other day, Ricky and Lucy, Martin and Lewis. So many of those relationships ended because of egos, divorce, divorce. But you know, not not to bring the room down, this friendship ended in death. It it, it was it was so real, and it was so raw, and the love that these two had for each other and the respect that the two of them had to each other was so strong that that was the only force that ended up dividing them
1: and it still really hasn't ended though because you can see it anytime you watch one of these movies and I think you know this was such a great time capsule not only of their friendship but for Disney as well and I think that the perfect person told this story. Because if Disney Plus had done this, of course, they have access to all of the footage, all of the drawings. They could have put it out there and and given us a great overview of what it was like during the era of the Nine Old Men. But it wouldn't have had that same personal touch. And we're so lucky that Ted Thomas allowed us this look into their career. But also into their lives.
0: Right, because I said it before and I'll say it again. Let's not mistake this for your atypical behind-the-scenes vignette. Yes, there is a look into the creative. Yes, it's a very interesting look into the creative. And I think it's a story that needed to be told in terms of how they did get these films made. But this is really about friendship. This is really about their relationship and how these two people bounced off of each other and really they built each other up, not only in their working relationship, but also in their personal relationship to be the best artists that they could be, to be the best animators that they could be, to be the best people that they could be. And their legacy will live on through uh, forever through these films. And to piggyback off of something that you just said about Ted Thomas opening up really the door into their personal life, we were also able to get a deeper look at what it took to make this film and what life was like with Frank and Ollie because Ted Thomas was kind enough to sit with us this week and... And we had a beautiful conversation with him that is being released as a bonus episode today as well. This episode and that bonus episode will be released side by side. So after you listen to our review here, you can go ahead and listen to that conversation. But we do have a conversation right now with somebody that actually did appear in the documentary. Somebody that did learn from Frank and Ollie and somebody that within his own right has left his stamp on some absolutely timeless films, and we're very happy to welcome Andy Gaskill to Monorail Radio. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Nice to be here. Thank you. So tell us about your career, how you got started in animation, and how that eventually led you to Disney.
2: Yeah, well, I was in art school in Philadelphia, and I was a sculpture major, and uh, there came a point where I said to myself, you know, what am I going to do for a living here? You You can't make a living as a sculptor at least I couldn't. And uh, just about that time, Disney started uh, developing an animation training program, and they were trying to rebuild their department again. This is 1973, which is a long time ago. And uh, that was the start of the whole, you know, the new era in Disney animation. And uh, I sent in my portfolio of drawings, and they brought me out here to California. I was 21 when I started.
1: Oh, wow. That's amazing. Uh, So you then worked as an animator on films such as Robin Hood, The Rescuers, and The Fox and the Hound, but you've also done a lot of work in the art department for Disney. Um, So for those who may not be familiar with the production process, could you elaborate on your roles in the art department?
2: I have art direction credits in uh, Lion King, Hercules, and Treasure Planet at Disney. Basically, there's a production designer and there's an art director on a movie, and Depending on the movie, that can vary quite a bit as to, as to what those people do. Typically, the production designer would be in charge of the overall artistic vision of the movie. And the art director would be there to sort of uh, make it real, right? And make it attractive to look at. And then you'll find cases where the two of them overlap, or even in some cases, exchange places in terms of responsibility. Art director is all about you're responsible for the image. You're responsible to deliver a high-quality image. You know, if it's a nighttime image or a moonlight image, you want to make sure that you can see everybody, but have it still feel like a moonlit night, you know, or a candlelit room or a fireplace or broad daylight. I'd say broad daylight is one of the hardest things to do because it tends to be flatter lighting than source lighting, like candles or a fireplace, but... Every lighting condition has its has its own challenges.
0: In what capacity did you get
2: to work with Frank and Ollie? Well, uh, for the young guys who started there back in the 70s, they assigned each of us an animator to, uh, you know, to be our mentors, right? And we would work with them, and we would take our work to them and, you know, get critiques. I worked mostly with Ollie, sometimes with Frank, too. And uh, they were there as the, the master wizards, and... Uh, God, I just remember it was so hard because animation is kind of uh, if somebody can do it really well, it's really hard to figure out how they do it. I mean, it's just kind of like a witchcraft in a way. They give you solid advice as to how to do it, but uh, it's so hard to like make translate that into actual, you know, into actual animation. I mean, as a young animator, we would just fight with the with the technical aspect of just even making the thing move convincingly, right? Uh, let alone performance. I mean, there's two issues. There's the technical thing of delivering the technical action. And then there's the, uh, the performance, the interpretation part. And uh, it's so hard. <laughs> Back then, I would say, unless you were like a super genius, it would take you, I don't know, a good five or six years before you got a, you know, before you got a handle on how that
1: worked. Would you say that your animation style is more analytical, like Frank, or more emotional, like Ali? I think
2: I lean more toward the emotional side. I tend to do everything from my gut, which, by the way, doesn't always give you the best results. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it does, uh, but you have to have the analytical side, too. I mean, okay, you have to have the confidence to go with your guts, but you really need to understand your character. You need to know what the character wants, you know, what it's what it's experiencing and what it wants at the moment you know, of the scene that you're animating. And also, uh, something that a lot of people forget is uh, what happened in the previous scene. What happened in the previous scene that would help shape what your character is doing right now? I forget what movie it was. It might have been Aristocats, but there was a wild chase, you know, with these characters are running around madly and in the immediate scene that follows, they're not out of breath. You know, <laughs> They're not out of breath. I mean, they should be out of breath. They should be huffing and panting and uh, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And that might be being a little too analytical, but you know, that's the kind of thing you should be thinking about, I think.
0: Yeah, and that's also something that you would think they would have preached, especially at Disney because, I mean, Walt Disney really tried to make his films feel so, so authentic and so real that they would have picked up on something like that.
2: Yeah, although in hindsight, looking at that now, I mean, the, the particular scenario that I just I just mentioned, that might have been a little too, uh, what's the word, method acting for Disney. Too much method acting and a little too Marlon Brando, you know, sure. uh, <laughs> whereas uh, in anima- Disney animation anyway, the story beats are very efficient and uh, you have a point that you want to get across here and then you have a point you want to get across here And, you know, you want to keep the story moving. And to spend the time, let's say, you know, with the characters huffing and panting and sort of getting it all back together, that takes a precious time. Unless there's a story point behind it, you know, I can see where they wouldn't do it. Right.
0: Now, Frank said watching your character on screen is like sending your child off to school. So (laughs) I have to ask you, what is it like for you to see something that you worked so hard on move on from the privacy of your own mind and your own creativity and then to go out into the public eye
2: i remember that comment uh, that remark that frank made i didn't have any children at the time when i was animating so that was not you know that was not a frame of reference for me i have kids now i think at the time i just felt extremely self-conscious you know and it would if i saw my my scene you know my character walking across the screen it was just like it was horrifying it was just like I'd wake up. You know, I would go into a, a cold sweat because I, I I would see every little thing that was wrong with it, and probably it wasn't that bad. But all you can see, all you can see, is the mistakes, right, or the things that could be better. So, in a way, if you if you spend three four years working on an animated movie, you forego the privilege of enjoying it, of enjoying ever watching it, and and you know, and enjoying it. Frank Thomas told me that uh, after he finished Sleeping Beauty and what, 1961, he didn't see it again until 1975, hmm. he, never, he never saw it, Wow. and I mean, and he did some beautiful work, he and Ollie both did some beautiful work in that movie, but I think it was so, uh, so draining for them, and so, uh, it was a hard movie to make in many ways, so uh, I think they were just sick of it, they didn't want to, they didn't want to see it when it was done, so I get that,
1: On a related note, Ali discussed in the film how sometimes it was difficult to start working on a scene when you have that first blank sheet of paper. What are some of the challenges that you have faced during the creative process? I mean,
2: I haven't animated since my mid-20s, right? When it comes to artwork, it's all about, or, you know, let's say design, like in art direction issues, it's almost about some big handle that you can latch onto and say, this is a picture that's going to look like, name the artist, you know, whoever. And usually, it's 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 useful to have some artist or some style as a reference point. I mean, you can you can diverge from it and change change it, but you know, it's good to have some artist that you can hook onto and say, you know, I kind of want it to look like one of his paintings or one of his drawings. And uh, as long as you have that some reference point, it gives you a window into into a project. But if you're if you're just going into a cold and you don't have any you don't have any reference point, yeah, it's pretty lonely. It's like being in a corner waiting for a bus and you know at two in the morning and you know it's not gonna come
0: <laughs> You said that Frank and Ollie taught you the secrets of magic. Do these secrets still influence you today?
2: Yeah. Yeah, they do. Yeah, I've often wondered about that because So they are are the direct heirs of, what, Frank and Ollie, or they're the direct heirs of a style of animation or a style of entertainment, right, and a style of um, character development, which, I don't know, is I'm not sure that it's around today. I mean, it is in some ways. It's different, okay? I mean, if you look at a Pixar movie or a Blue Sky movie or Sergio Pablos, right, in Spain, Everybody's got some kind of aesthetic, some sort of way of, way of telling the story and dealing with characters, but uh, Frank and Ollie had that, well, they, they created the, quote, Disney movie, the Disney, the Disney cartoon. And um, I do think that there's some kind of special magic there that um, is still, what, useful or translatable today. There's one word that they kept using, uh, which was appeal. Okay, and when I was a young guy, that didn't quite make sense to me. Like appeal, like what do you mean by appeal? And by appeal, they simply meant something that was ingratiating about the character, so that you cared about them and you wanted to be interested in what their problems were, and you know you wanted you wanted to be on board with them. And um, it's so easy to make a character that doesn't have appeal. So. If it doesn't have appeal, then you don't really care about it. You may laugh, you may think the character's funny or whatever, but you don't really care about it. And maybe that's what it is. That uh, Frank and Ollie, particularly, they were the masters of appeal. You know, I mean, they could they could take characters and just make them so endearing, and uh, you care about them. You know, I don't know how I don't know how else to put it. Right?
0: <laughs> no, but that totally makes sense, though, because they talked about in the documentary, there was uh, a a clip that they showed from the rescuers, obviously a film you're very familiar with when Penny and Rufus are talking about how she was looked over for the little redheaded girl because she was prettier. And they talk about how that wasn't a person that emoted that it was, it was a drawing that did it. So I think that what you just said makes
2: absolutely perfect sense. Yeah. Well, I would say Frank and Ollie especially had that, they had that gift for entering psychologically into, into a character's vulnerabilities and really bringing it out. So the audience could see it. Uh, I, I think in the movie the Frank and Ollie movie, I mentioned the, the, the scene about the squirrel. Yes. Uh, when, uh, when uh, Wart is turned into a squirrel and, and the, the girl squirrel falls in love with him and the sadness that she feels when she realizes, Oh, he's not a squirrel. And that. It works metaphorically on so many different levels about love.
1: Was that your favorite scene of theirs, or is there another one in particular that had a big impact on you, whether it was as an animator or even in your work now?
2: Oh, well, I was uh, was four years old, four or five, when I saw Lady and the Tramp. (laughs) And I was just amazed by the uh, spaghetti sequence. That just made such a huge impression on me. And why? I don't know. It's like two dogs sitting at a table, you know, in an Italian restaurant, eating spaghetti and meatballs. It's like, if you just talk about it, it sounds kind of stupid, but it's got to be one of the most appealing scenes in all of cinema, right? And you know it almost didn't get made. You know right. you know that. Oh, yeah. Th- yeah. Frank tried to talk Walt into it, and Walt said, dogs eating spaghetti? Nah. <laughs> no. Never happened. And uh, Frank, on his own time, you know, at home on weekends or whatever, roughed out the scene and uh, shot a pencil test and showed it to Walt. And Walt said, okay, (laughs) all right, we'll do it.
0: I had said when we reviewed that film, because we did it um, a couple of months ago now, and I had said that that scene in particular, of all of the scenes that have been put pen to paper in animation that might just be the most significant scene ever animated in the history of cinema
2: yeah you know if you're if we're around 100 years from now i'd like to see how people feel about it then yeah absolutely i mean it may have a whole it may have a whole new significance then
1: that's one of the things that we love so much about this documentary too is learning about you know they were such technically great animators, but their intuition with story was just unbelievable.
2: Yes, it was, and uh, well, they had very good story people there too uh, at that time, and uh, that makes a huge difference. They they are the unsung heroes in many ways. Another one of my favorite movies is Dalmatians. Bill Peet, you know, Bill Peet is such he's he was like the driving force of story there, and uh, boy, what a great story!
0: So we talked about, you know, we'd love to know 100 years from now what they might be saying about Lady and the Tramp. But let's live in the now. And here we are 25 years after this documentary had been filmed and and you were a part of that documentary. So with all of that time having gone by, what is it like for you now having gone from being a student of Frank and Ollie to now being a teacher for the next generation of artists and animators?
2: I'm not teaching anybody. I mean, I'm, I'm just working like everybody else, you know? I've kind of backed away from art direction now. So uh, I've gone back to uh, design and also storyboarding. So I spent a lot of time storyboarding now, which I find great fun because a lot of my, you know, all the various components of my, my vision, animation and performance, staging, that you know, the staging and camera that you get in uh, layout and design that you get in art direction, all of that, I can sort of funnel into uh, a story sketch. So that's fun for me.
1: We've talked a lot about the work that Frank and Ollie did for Disney and their individual styles. But what makes this documentary so special is that their friendship is shining through it. What was it like to witness that relationship firsthand?
2: I've never seen a friendship like that. You know, they met each other at, at Stanford, I guess and uh, they both went to work at Disney, and well, they've always been the best of friends. You know, I don't have an answer to what, what the chemistry is there, except uh, deep and abiding friendship and respect. I mean, I'm close to my wife, but I'm not that close to anybody else, you know?
0: Right. There's never been that platonic friendship where you had, right. had a relationship like it almost would be in a marriage.
2: Right, and... Uh, they could finish each other's thoughts and well i think they they depend on each other too for uh to be their most loyal critic of their work i mean they would always they would all show each other their work and ollie would give his perspective and frank would give his perspective frank was a serious planner i mean he would do like reams and reams of drawings just to plan you know plan a scene and plan it from any number of different angles and perspectives and you know ways of looking at it and Ollie of course would just you know pretty much go with his first impulse and both of them did really great work you know <laughs> it's just it's a, a temperament thing but like I said I, I do think it's really important to uh, for most people anyway for me to have both because you've got to have the confidence to go with your guts but uh, you really need to do your homework too you need to do your homework and really understand understand why your character is behaving the way he does um, otherwise he's just, you know, he's just moving around, but without any, without any real motives.
1: Are there any projects that you want to talk about that you can talk about that you have in the works or, uh, besides IMDB, where can we send our listeners to find you so that they can view your work?
2: I have a story that I started developing, which I've sort of put on the back burner, but, uh, it's called Abigail Laveris and it's on, uh, Instagram as one minute clips And uh, it's something I started with my son and my daughter. And, uh, you know, we've been having fun with it. But I've kind of put it on the back burner for now. But the episodes are there.
0: Andy Gaskell, thank you so much for joining us today on Monoreal Radio. We really appreciate your time and we appreciate your story and we appreciate everything that you had to, to say about Frank and Ollie.
2: Thank you very much. It was a fun evening.
0: News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break.
3: Hey everyone, this is Brian down here in South Florida. I'm about two hours south of Disney, and when it comes to planning vacations, Jackie's the way to go. I have a quick story for you. When it came to booking my family vacation for my two-year-old daughter and my wife, you know, like everybody, I immediately went to the internet, started scouting prices, compiling lists, and uh, building my perfect vacation at Disney. Just out of curiosity, I reached out to Jackie. She mentioned she was uh, booking vacations for many people. So I gave her my uh, list, my itinerary. She looked it over, and when she came back to me, she gave me her recommendations in regards to the parks. However, she also had new pricing associated with it. Um, I've learned that going on my own doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be getting the best pricing. Jackie was able to beat the majority of the pricing within my list and saving me a ton of money but she has the insight and the connections to do so on top of that it was stress free so all my vacations in the future are going to be through her because i don't have to think about it she plans it i give her some information in regards to what i want to do what my plans are for that week when i go visit disney and she'll make it happen and create the itinerary for me she's a market expert Myself, I go into a park, I immediately hop on the next line, I get a few fast passes, and at the end of the day, I don't accomplish everything like I would want to. She advised on which rides to attack first, which restaurants I should schedule on what day, and how to properly allocate my time to maximize my vacation. It was an amazing process. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Way to go, Monoreal. Keep it going.
1: So you can get in touch with me on any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can shoot me an email at J.Zolezi. that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I at MagicalVacationPlanner.com.
0: Some exciting news this week for us fans of the throwbacks out there. Um, Rick Moranis is coming back for the... Honey, I Shrunk the Kids reboot. Don't know why I didn't come back for Ghostbusters Afterlife, but we got him back for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids reboot. But that is significant, though, because Rick Moranis, for those who don't know his story, retired from acting when his wife died very young so that he could stay home and raise his children, which he was at the peak of his fame when this happens. It's a terribly tragic thing, but, I mean, it's such a selfless act. For you to essentially end your career when, as a leading man, I dare say, his life was really just beginning.
1: There was a lot to walk away from, and I can only imagine. I, I think he would have had a career, especially with Disney, similar to Robin Williams. Um, But it's an amazing thing that he did, and... I'm so excited that he's coming back and a million thanks to Josh Gad because he was really the driving force to bring him back to reprise the Wayne Zielinski role. And Josh Gad is going to be playing grown up Nick with his own family in this one.
0: Right. And I believe that's a straight to Disney Plus release. I believe so, too. I think so. And then we got some pictures of Emilio, the <laughs> Mighty Duck Man, I swear to God. Emilio Estevez back on the ice. The for, quack
1: attack is, is back.
0: back. Um, My
1: in, 90s heart could like not handle this week.
0: But similar, another reboot, Mighty Ducks going to Disney Plus and... Uh, we we definitely don't have Goldberg appearing, but we got Emilio Estevez.
1: <laughs> uh, coach Bombay is back. Marketing powers that be, please do not miss out on the Air Loafers this time around.
0: Yes, the Air Bombays for yes. kids who want to coach. <laughs> I'm pretty more. I'm pretty sure Sketchers make something that's very similar to that because I know I've owned a couple of pairs. Well, we want to know if you guys are excited for that news. And, and not just that, but we want to hear what you guys have to say about this film, Frank and Ollie. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also shoot us an email that we can read live on the air. Monorealradio at gmail.com. So we got through the news. We got through the interview. We teased the other special interview that you can go listen to. In fact, I, I suggest you go listen to it right after this because it was that good, really. But, I mean, both were great. Andy was great, and Ted was fantastic. We just love, you know, we're so appreciative that these people give us their time. But really, we think you guys would get an awful lot out of that, especially if you love Frank and Ollie and love their story. So we got through all that, we discussed the film, but now it's time to finally tie up the loose end, and that's our contest. That we teased at the beginning of this episode because big anniversary right now being celebrated the 70th anniversary of the original animated classic Cinderella. She looks great for her age. Looks great for her age. We also reviewed that show or uh, that film as well. We're going to link up to that in the show notes. You guys can go back and listen to our review of Cinderella and of its live action remake. But we have something very special here. We have a Blu ray, DVD, and digital copy of the anniversary edition of Cinderella, as well as the two movie collection. Cinderella 2 dreams come true and Cinderella 3 a twist in time we also have some stickers here and some uh, clings it looks like uh, sort of uh, like a window cling or something um, with some of the uh classic characters from Cinderella very easy for you to enter to win that one uh we're going to... Take photographs of the prizes like we do. You guys are used to this by now. We're going to put it out there on our social media Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. All you need to do to enter to win is like the post and tag a friend. Like the post and tag a friend you'll have until sunday march 1st at 11 59 p.m to enter we're going to let this run for two weeks and we will announce the winner on the show that drops on tuesday march 3rd as always thank you all for joining us Each and every week here on Monoreal Radio. Thank you so much again to Ted Thomas and Andy Gaskill for coming on the show and, and talking to us about this film and about what Frank and Ollie meant to them. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And the best thing that you could do for us is help spread the word, and you can share your episode with your friends and family. We will be back next week. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you
2: for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.